I invite you to open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. I'm Pastor Jay. It is a privilege to have you with us this morning. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Pastor Doug. Hard to get much more biblical than a choir anthem on fearing God. If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle, towards going towards the end of a series in this very unusual book. Ecclesiastes seems to be a little bit like the book of Revelation in the sense that people either love it or kind of hate it and aren't sure what to do with it. And it's, we have found it to be an eminently wise book, practical book, and helpful book, and that God, in fact, inspired it. Some people have said, well, the guy that wrote it was not exactly uh, all there sometimes. He seems to have been uh, a rebel. He seems to have uh, crashed and burned morally. There's a number of truths in that with Solomon. Nonetheless, the Lord sought fit to inspire three books through this man. He is called at one point the wisest man who ever lived, and yet he did incredibly foolish things. I look at that as encouragement, that God is willing to use extremely flawed vessels in life, and he is willing to use me and you. So, Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes. We're calling this series Finding Life's Purpose. We've learned that what makes this book so unique <clears throat> is that it's a diary. It's a, it's a journal, candid journal of someone we might call a disillusioned hedonist, a disillusioned pleasure seeker, someone on a pleasure safari who found out that the more he binged on pleasures, even good ones, in fact, most of the pleasures we've said mentioned here are good pleasures. But the more he chased pleasure for the sake of pleasure, the more he discovered that they led him to misery and to depression. Until he discovered that the only lasting satisfaction in life comes from fearing and obeying God. That in itself makes this an incredibly valuable book in the canon of Scripture. That brings us to chapter 8 this weekend. We're now in the second half of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7 to 12, and one of the dominant themes in the second half is wisdom. In fact, the words wise and wisdom are used over 30 times in this last half. So in this chapter before us today, Solomon is going to continue on the topic of wisdom by giving us three very important reminders about living wisely, and all of these are very essential. Reminder number one, remember to honor the king. Honor those in authority over us. Number two, remember to fear God. And number three, remember wisdom's limitations, human wisdom's limitations. So let's dive in. Remember to honor the king. As we arrive at Ecclesiastes 8, Solomon is now giving us more principles of wisdom. And the first one, in verses 1 to 9, is this. Remember to honor those in authority over us, the civil authorities. Here, it's a monarchical culture, so he says honor the king, but this applies in any structure politically. Paul taught the same thing in Romans 13 when it came to one of the emperors in Rome. Let me read the first four verses. If you're new with us or visiting with us, this is how we go about preaching. We take a theme or generally books of the Bible and we walk through them. Why? Because it all comes from our theology that this is the inspired, infallible, and errant Word of God. And whether written in Hebrew, like this was, 
or Aramaic like some parts of the Old Testament or in Greek like the New Testament that God inspired that final product and it is breathed out from him and these are the words of life and that is why we spend so much time in the text asking what does the text say and trying to follow the logic and argument of the text so that we hear from God. That is why we spend so much time asking what does the text say. First four verses here, remember to honor the king, that's here. And these are very countercultural, especially in a culture like us in America, where we tend to bristle at authority. So, let us ask that we hear what God has said here. Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face. We actually ended last week's sermon with that verse. That there is a notable difference on somebody's face, a noticeable difference when they are a follower of Christ or not. Wisdom brings light to someone's eyes. Wisdom brings a brightness to someone's countenance when they follow God's wisdom. A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because, the oath, because you took an oath before God. So do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? So let's stop there. The general principle here, backed up in other places in Scripture, is very clear. And that is, we are in submission to the governing civil authorities. Something the Bible teaches over and over. Jesus told his disciples, Render under Caesar those things that are Caesar's. And this was not a Christian Caesar when he said that. This is in Luke chapter 20, verse 25. Romans 13, 1, the Apostle Paul says this. Let every person submit to the governing authorities or be subject to the governing authorities. And translate the word either way. And again, remember, Paul is writing with Rome in charge of Palestine at the time. Most likely he's writing this when Nero is emperor, a brutal, brutal, basically psychopath, sociopath, who delighted in killing Christians and torturing them. And yet Paul is saying, as you look at the government structures, you know, we are to submit to those who are ruling. In fact, he says in verse 2, verse 1, let every person submit to the governing authorities. Romans 13, 2, whoever rebels against the authorities rebelling against what God has instituted. So let us establish right up front this very important idea. Young people especially hear this. The idea of human civil government is deeply biblical. Whether in Boston or Bosnia, whether in North Korea or Saudi Arabia, it is something that God has instituted. And it is something that we are to follow and to submit to. By the way, Romans 13, 1 and 2, where Paul writes about being submission to the government authorities and anyone who rebels against the authorities, rebels against God, caused a lot of consternation during the time of the American Revolution. Some of you may know this, some of you may not, but this divided the colonies because the question became, is it okay then to secede from England? Is it okay to rebel? Not even... That, and that doesn't mean everyone's intentions at first were to rebel, 
To some, they were simply asking the king to treat them as loyal British citizens and not put them on a two-tiered system. Nonetheless, it eventually led to a break with England and it caused a lot of rift and division. Clergy were divided. Churches were divided. Denominations were divided. The Anglican Church, Church of England, obviously most sided with staying with Britain. But this divided all sorts of Christians and churches and denominations over the question, is it okay to rebel against King George III? Now, again, this is a tough one because we're Americans, at least most of us are, and built into our DNA as a nation, besides the fact that we're sinful and sinners rebel and bristle at authority, Americans bristle at authority. We were a nation born in resistance and that continues in our DNA. You see it. Best-selling author, Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is a bit of a cultural icon. He's getting a little older these days. But if you've read anything by Noam Chomsky, I've read a number of things he's written. He likes to describe himself in the anarchist tradition. <laughs> he's a professor at MIT. He says, be suspicious and skeptical of all authority and all, all hierarchy. And he is on the forefront of advocating kind of this anarchy position. Howard Zinn, some of you may know the name, was a radical leftist professor at Boston University. Wrote a book uh, called The People's History of the United States that's uh, been viewed with all kinds of different uh, perspectives, kind of a mangling of American history. But in the book, his maxim is question authority, question all authority. And he argues in the book, government is completely man-made. That's why you should be suspicious and rebel and question all authority. Matt Damon's character in Goodwill Hunting, by the way, uh, endorses Howard Zinn's book and gives it a big plug. And yet here scripture is very clear. Here, in Romans, in other places, and also in Proverbs 24, 21. Praise the Lord and the king, my son, and do not join with rebellious officials. That brings us to verse 5. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 5. Whoever obeys his command, again, king, the one in authority, will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. In other words, wisdom needs to guide us in our role with the governing authorities. We need patience. We need wisdom. Things can get complex in a non-Christian structure, which virtually every political system ultimately is a non-Christian structure in the sense that not everyone in it is a follower of Yahweh. Nonetheless, the structures itself, government itself, is deeply biblical. Now here, several reasons are given why we need to be in submission and why we need wisdom to navigate the complexities of being a citizen in a nation, republic, democracy, uh, whether or could be a brutal regime, whatever it is. He gives us several principles from verse 2 down to verse 8. So wisdom needs to guide us in our role with governing authorities. We need patience and wisdom. And Solomon gives us several reasons. Number one, we're to be loyal subjects, verse 2. In fact, he even says those in service have taken an oath. Secondly, to abandon one's place before the king, verse 3, may be to lose all influence. So when you look at someone like a Joseph or a Daniel, someone that served in government, you see 
people that God used and gave great wisdom to to navigate very complex political and moral situations. Three, the king is generally supreme, and we don't just simply correct him. Verse four, who can say to him, what are you doing? And fourthly, no one knows the future, and wickedness will catch up with them. Some Hebrew scholars believe this applies to both the king and the people. I think it probably does, but for us, no one knows the future, and if we rebel, if we're not in submission, wickedness will catch up with us, verses 7 and 8. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what is to come? Since no one has the power over it, the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. So a very strong admonition, as in Romans, as in Proverbs, as in Daniel, that we are to be in submission to the authorities, that human government is deeply biblical. Now that obviously raises the question, is there ever a time to disobey the king? Is there ever a time to disobey those in authority over us? Is there ever a time to practice civil disobedience or even to not obey or to ignore unjust laws? However you want to phrase the question. To help answer that, you have to go back to what Paul says in Romans 13. I ask you to turn there for just a second. Romans 13, 1 and 2, where Paul gives probably some of the clearest direct teaching on the subject. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Here Paul is talking about submission to those in authority. And while we get principles or illustrations from other passages of the Bible, here you have direct teaching. The Apostle Paul writing, and again, he's under one of the most brutal of the Caesars. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Dr. Doug Moo has one of the best commentaries on Romans. And he says of these two verses this. He teaches at Wheaton Graduate School. Paul calls on believers to submit or be subject, however you want to translate it, to governing authorities rather than simply to obey them. Different word. To submit, writes Dr. Moo, is to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy, to acknowledge as a general rule that certain people or institutions have authority over us. So it's interesting, Paul chose the word, the Holy Spirit chose the word submit or be subject. And that means that the vast majority of time, Christians are called to submit and be subject. But there is a time, clearly in Scripture, where there is disobedience allowed when someone is either asking us to support and or violate something that God has directly commanded. A direct law of God. That is the time. Let me just say it again. There's a time when civil disobedience is allowed and mandated, but it should be, as Solomon says, entered into wisely and carefully with great patience. When is that time? That time is if we are commanded to do something 
or support something that directly violates God's law. We see this in the Old Testament, for example, with Daniel. Daniel defied what was a quickly run-through law in their system that outlawed praying to anybody except the human king, Darius. And Daniel defied that. He defied that. Now, you've got to be willing to pay the price. That's the other side of this. That's why this requires wisdom and maturity and courage and should never be entered into lightly or flippantly. But there is a time and in a place Daniel decided, I think wisely, there was a time. This was the time. And so he acted in courage and defied the law. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, the civil authorities reeled in John and, and, and uh, Peter. They were preaching out in public. That was forbidden, they said. Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, ruled them in, disciplined them, and said, you are not to be preaching out in public. Threatened them. And in Acts 4, they responded to the authorities. Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Should we obey you rather than God? And they went right back out in the streets and started preaching again. So there is a time, there is a place. When is that? When we're commanded to do or support or participate in something that God has directly said no or directly violates a law of God. Let me give you just one simple example from our lives. We had our kids on a trip to Malaysia a number of years ago. And just very quickly, the political system structure Malaysia. Malaysia is a Muslim country. And so you're allowed to have Christian literature in Malaysia and or a Bible as long as it's not in Malay, the, the official language. You cannot have it in Bahasa Malay. So you can have a Bible, and there's several different ethnic groups in Malaysia. So you can have a Bible, you can have Christian literature in Tamil for the Indian uh, minority. Or you can have it in Mandarin, Chinese minority. Or you can have it in English. So there are actually large congregations of believers in Kuala Lumpur, but they're not using Malay Bibles. They're not using Malay literature. In fact, on, stamped on a lot of the literature is, this is, you can hand this out to anybody except a Muslim. <laughs> Says right, they'll stamp that right on their literature because that's supposedly a government edict. So to have any Christian literature, and especially a Bible, in Malay, the official language, is strictly illegal and forbidden. So on this one trip we had our kids, we were heading out to a village to spend a night or two. And we were it's a, it's a small village, a thousand people. And we were actually going to be, it was arranged, we were going to stay with the imam. This was the, the, the Muslim leader of the village. And uh, we were going to stay with his family. And as we were getting ready to go, some, someone hands us a whole stack of Christian literature in Malay. And Bibles. <clears throat> so as we're getting on the train, one of my precious daughters is a, is a rule follower. I have one daughter that is a rule follower and one's not. My one daughter, who is a very fastidious, tender-hearted rule follower, as we're on the train, she's sitting there, she says, Dad, is that legal? And I said, well, no, not technically, sweetheart, this is illegal. I mean, we're carrying all this 
stuff, but this is, you know, we're, we're going out to share Jesus. I mean, we're, we're going out there to spend the evening, get to know these people and spend the night with them, but we also want to be able to be witnesses. Yeah, but it's not legal. I said, yeah, you're right. I, I shouldn't be carrying this. Here, you carry it. <laughs> so I, I said it in her lap. Her eyes got huge. I said, they're not going to arrest a 13-year-old sweetheart. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I think I took it back. I, I, I hope so, so. But when we got there, you know, we, we tried to be wise. It, was, it gave us a chance to disciple our kids. You don't just go storming in. You don't just defy things for the sake of defying. But it gave us a chance to disciple our kids that there's a time when there's an unjust law. And when we're told we cannot share Christ, because this village, they didn't speak English. They only spoke Malay. And there's a time when we say, you know what, it's okay. We're going to hand out Christian literature in Malay and even Bibles. And I had a chance to explain to the imam the gospel, and I handed him all this stuff. He could have turned us in. And we had to tell our kids we could be asked to leave or booted out or, or something here. We have to be ready. But there's a time and a place. Solomon's point is the vast majority of time, we are to be in submission to authority. Whether that authority is Christian or not, God has instituted human government and he expects us to be good citizens unless we absolutely don't have a choice. And so that is something to hear. In World War II in Germany, one of my favorite heroes is Martin Niemöller. He was a pastor, a pretty well-known pastor. And he, uh, was, he eventually decided he needed to publicly protest Nazis' brutality uh, publicly. And he, uh, he spoke up against Hitler. He ended up in prison. And a chaplain came to visit him one day and he asked, this is a fairly well-known, it's a true story. I have, it, I have his autobiography. And someone asked him, um, uh, the chaplain did, why are you in prison, Pastor Niemöller? To which Niemöller turned to the chaplain outside the jail bars and said, no, that's not the question. The question is, why aren't you in prison? So there, there is a time and there is a place. Secondly, we turn from honoring the king to remember to fear God. I find this interesting because one of the most repeated commands in the Bible is don't be afraid. It comes up over and over again. Don't fear. Do not fear. You see this command over and over that God doesn't want his people to fear. He wants them to trust his providence, his divine sovereign rule, his loving care for them. Don't be afraid. But then we're also told, on the flip side, over and over again, we need to fear God. Our choir sang that this morning. The Proverbs announced that. Ecclesiastes mentions it six different times, we're to fear God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 8. Verse, verse 10. Then too I saw the wicked buried and those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city. And this too is meaningless. Now, what's this have to do with fearing God? Well, in verse 10, Solomon is once again troubled. He's troubled a lot. He's describing here a funeral of those who are wicked, but they're frequent worshipers. So they're doing the opposite of fearing God. That's, that's the point here. Let me read it again. Then too I saw the wicked buried and those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in a city where they did this. This too is hevel. It's, it's meaningless. It's vanity. So you have people who are described as wicked, and yet they're frequent worshipers at the holy place, at the temple. That, that goes on, by the way, in every single church. goes on here. It goes on in every church. There are those who have no relationship with God, 
who come to worship for whatever different reason, lots of reasons people come to a worship service or go worship. And these people even received praise. And even though they were ungodly, and as Solomon reflected on this, he remembered that the wicked, however, will be judged and righteous will be rewarded. So it's better off to fear God and live a godly life. Verses 12, 13. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know it will go better for those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them. He's speaking both of this life and obviously the next life because Solomon always has the judgment of God in view. He brings it up several times. Their days will not lengthen like a shadow. So the evil man may live longer than the godly man. None of this may make sense to us. He may appear to get away with sinning for years. But the day of judgment, Solomon reminds us, will come. The wicked will not escape because they did not fear God. Again, fear God, this phrase shows up about six times in Ecclesiastes. And it means to have a healthy, reverent fear, uh, seeing God as king, seeing him as the righteous king. He holds, he, he holds the life of, I mean, the power of life and death over us. And in that sense, we are to revere and to fear him. At the end of Ecclesiastes, by the way, chapter 12, we keep pointing to this. It's a very interesting connection made here. Solomon reminds us that in practical terms, what fearing God looks like. Fear God and obey his commandments. Those go together. Fear God, verse 13, 12, 13, and keep his commandments. Or you might even say, fear God by keeping his commandments. That doesn't mean just rote obedience automatically means your heart fears the Lord. But one of the indications that someone does fear God is that they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they want to obey God's commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments. He's reminding us in very practical terms, fearing God is directly linked to obedience to God. What does that mean? Well, let's get practical for a minute. It means anybody can say the words. Anybody can say, well, I'm a Christian. I hear that. You hear that. Anyone can say, well, I believe in God. I know God. I go to church. Anyone can say, well, I, you know, I made a decision for Jesus way back there 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Anyone can say, I follow Jesus. Anyone can say, I'm religious. According to Solomon, especially according to Jesus, the proof that someone truly fears God truly knows God and has had a spiritual rebirth, has a new nature, they've been born again, is the fact that they hunger for righteousness and two, that we see in their lives a growing pattern of obedience towards the things of God. Fearing God is always connected to obedience to God. And so we see in them a hunger for righteousness, those who fear God, and a growing pattern, I think that's the safest phrase, of obedience. Not perfection, but a growing trajectory towards being obedient. A growing pattern of obedience, for example, in their finances, in their business dealings. A growing pattern of obedience in areas of sexual purity. Choosing to stay pure until marriage. 
Staying faithful to our marriage vows after marriage. Staying away from things like pornography, which is so deadly, so destructive. A growing pattern of obedience when it comes to honoring the Lord's Day and keeping it holy, getting involved in our local church, coming and worshiping with God's people, sitting under the preaching of His Word. A growing pattern of obedience when it comes to forgiving those who have betrayed us, wounded us, abused us, manipulated us. There's a growing pattern of obedience there. Why? Because those who fear God obey God. A growing pattern of obedience when it comes to tithing or integrity or being a truth teller or being honest. You can go down the list and fill in the blank. In short, those who fear God are those who obey God. And there's a growing pattern, trajectory, direction of obedience in their lives. And it's manifested in what 8.1 says, the person's wisdom brightens their face. You can tell when you're with someone who fears God and is walking in obedience. And you can tell when you're not with someone who fears God, even if they're truly a Christian and are disobedient. There's a darkness. There's a clouding of their countenance. There's a misery that slowly settles in on their soul because of not obeying God. Lastly, we have remember to honor the king. Remember to fear God. Lastly, remember wisdom's limitations. And you don't need to be a professional philosopher to know how frustrating Wisdom's limitations are. At the end of chapter 8, the preacher says, I mean, he sounds like a frustrated philosopher here. He's reminding us that human wisdom has its limitations and it can only go so far. So let's look at verses 14 and 16 and 17. There is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. And now he's going to give us more of this hevel, more of this just, this doesn't make sense, makes you want to bang your head on the wall, the righteous who get what the wicked deserve, wicked who get what the righteous deserve, that drives us crazy. That too, I say, is meaningless. Drop down to verse 16. When I, when I, when I applied my mind, to, you know, when I tried to figure this out and observe the labor that is done under the, uh, on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, and then I saw all that God had done, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. <laughs> Amen. Despite all their efforts to search it out, if you look through the history of philosophy and intellectual thought, you will see abundant efforts to sort it all out. Some of it gets some things right. Some of it gets some things very wrong. But no one can figure it all out. No one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Wow, there's a, there's a good passage for those who are philosophy majors. Those who specialize in intellectual history. I minored in philosophy. I love the history of philosophy. I love the study of philosophy. But verse 17 is gold. I mean, that should be, if I was ever going to teach philosophy at the college level, I would start with verse 17. When I saw all God had done, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all the efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Again, some are going to get more things right than others. A Plato versus a Nietzsche, for example. But nobody is going to even figure this all out. Not even the most godly theologian. Why? 
because life is a wearisome business. And it's impossible to know for certain what God is doing. Just when, just when I think, oh yeah, I, I, I can see what God's doing here. A few of you smile, laugh. Just when I think, oh, I finally know what God is going to do over here, everything changes. Everything scrambles. And the next day I wake up and I have no idea what's going on. I'm sure that only happens to me, but <laughs> wow. J.I. Packer in his classic Knowing God has a paragraph worth your tithe today. This is worth your gold. That just nails this so well. What the Bible wants to show us is that the real basis of wisdom is a frank acknowledgement that, his, that this world's course is puzzling. We feel sure that God has enabled us to understand all his ways with us. And we, look at this, if we take it for granted, we will be able to see at once the reason for anything that may happen to us in the future. We all do that. And it's just not so. That's a Hebrew word that means not good. And then something very painful and quite inexplicable comes along and our cheerful illusion of being in God's secret counsel is shattered. Some of us have been deeply shattered for that very reason. The truth is that God in his wisdom to make and keep us humble and to teach us to walk by faith has hidden from us almost everything that we would like to know about his providential purposes which he is working out in our churches and in our own lives. That is a man who knew God, who soaked in the scriptures for decades and in the Puritans. And he'd be the last guy to stand up here and say, oh, he's the paragon of all wisdom, but he was wise. And that paragraph nails it. And if you've not read his classic, Knowing God, I cannot encourage you fast enough to go get a copy and to read it. It's worth gold because that's the kind of wisdom it's filled with. So how does Solomon respond to wisdom's limitations? He tells us in spite of all the craziness under the sun, in spite of the fact that life is hevel, it's a, it's a puff, it's a, it's, a, it's a vapor, it is possible, he says, nonetheless, to find joy and contentment in the ordinary things of life. And this is a theme we see throughout his book, his, his, his diary. Verse 15, here he says it. He reminds us that the only way we can know and enjoy the God above the sun and enjoy things below the sun is to take pleasure in the simple things and the gifts of life. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. Why? Because good food, good drink, good friends, good fellowship, these are gifts from God. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of life God has given them under the sun. That is how, in the midst of craziness, we find pleasure. I love quoting John Wesley. I quoted him at the beginning of the series. I want to quote him again. This is after he would preached his way all the way through Ecclesiastes. He wrote this in his journal began expounding the book of Ecclesiastes, never before had I had so clear a vision of either its meaning or beauties. Neither did I imagine that the several parts of it were so well fitted together, all leading to this grand truth. There is no happiness outside of God. 
That is why God inspired this book to be in the canon of Scripture. All right, what are our two summons this morning? I'm going to give you two. One. Ecclesiastes points directly to Jesus and his gospel and the call to repent and believe. I say that on good authority because the New Testament presents Jesus as the personified wisdom of God. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature and the wisdom books point straight to the cross. Colossians 2.3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my, my commands. So Ecclesiastes points directly to the need to have a relationship with the living Christ. That's the only way we will escape judgment. Second and final summons. When God's ways don't make any sense to us, when we feel absolutely shattered and everything has shifted on us and the ground is moved and we've faced tremendous loss or betrayal or pain or woundedness or disillusionment, we need to turn to God's promises. That's where we will find hope. See, the older we get, I'm not going to ask you to confess your age to the person next to you, but the older we get, let's be honest, the more we should discover something Solomon discovered, and that is this, that finding hope, finding joy is not about getting answers. In fact, getting answers to whatever vexes thee often will not satisfy thee. It may a little bit. Once in a while, God gives us wisdom why someone betrayed us or something happened or our health shifted, or we lost somebody, or whatever. But generally, getting answers doesn't solve anything, and generally, it doesn't soothe our soul. What soothes, what soothes our soul? What brings joy? What brings satisfaction? It is simply this, trusting in the goodness of God and going back to His promises. It is a reminder God's people live on promises, not explanations. It's a reminder that we constantly need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And it's a reminder that we will never find joy and satisfaction under the sun until we trust in and fear the God who is above the sun. That is the book of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. Father, we thank you that Solomon, though a deeply flawed man, morally compromised, nonetheless, you chose this man to write Three different books of the Bible. May it be an encouragement to us that you delight in using deeply flawed people like us. I pray for those of us here this morning who know Christ that we would hunger and thirst for wisdom. And I pray for those here this morning who are faking it, who are counterfeit Christians, who are not born again, that you would open their eyes and bring them into saving relationship with Jesus. And we pray this in his glorious name. Amen.